1: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, ear-lover, literary mansplainer-in-chief, and very soon-to-be Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black recently returned from Sabana. Sunday, Savannah. in my head it sounds like Havana, Savannah, Havana. So there was like a Cuban thing happening in my head. It was it was a fun moment in my skull. Not I was I was going to say not as fun in Savannah, but Savannah was fun. But it was an interesting trip down south of the Mason Dixon line with my beautiful bride Martha. We went to visit. Our home. We're having some work done on it, and so we were going to be there for what two, uh, one, like two and a half days. Two two and a half days, yeah, something like that. And uh, day one was somewhat frightful because we showed up at our haunted mansion, and I don't know if it's haunted, but I think I may start referring to it as the haunted mansion. We showed up at the haunted mansion. Um, and met with our painter, Selvin, who was very enthusiastically telling us all the things wrong with the house. And that was frightful. You know, he was focused mostly on all the painting he had to do, and all the, you know, all the all the, 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 lead paint, and the things he had to scrape, and all this and that, and there were guys there, and it was taking longer than he expected, and he was gonna have to charge us more, and blah, 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 blah. Very, incidentally, very nice guy. I didn't feel like he was railroading me at all. But then we, you know, we were seeing it for the first time all cleared out. You know, the previous owner's furniture gone. Um, It was a, you know, it was a little, it was a a little naked looking, which was fine in its way. But, you know, when, when, after you buy something, what do you get? Of course, buyer's remorse. And we were experiencing our, fair amount of buyer's remorse as we were looking at the leak in the basement where the air handler was, as we were looking at all the nooks and crannies and the cracked things and the splintered things and the work that was going to be required to get the haunted mansion up to snuff. Additionally, we were mourning our unhaunted mansion here in the wilds of Connecticut, which we will probably end up haunting one day. And in a strange city and feeling a little bereft and a little mournful and a lot unsettled. And I reflected to my young bride, Martha, I reflected to her that I don't remember feeling quite so unsettled when we moved from, say, New York to Los Angeles after we got married, shortly thereafter. And then a year and a half later, when we moved from Los Angeles to Peekskill, New York, knowing not a soul. When we moved from Peekskill to the wilds of Connecticut, knowing nary a soul. I don't remember feeling nearly so unsettled as I felt that day in sunny Sabana, And I wonder if... It is a reflection of age, if age itself is the great settler. And once you get to a place where you have a family, for example, and you put down roots, so to speak, have a much harder time uprooting yourself as you age than when you are young and carefree and fleet of foot. So it was a little bit disarming and a little bit scary. And then I further reflected that all of that tumult that we were experiencing our first day in sunny Savannah was maybe a good thing, maybe that kind of change, that kind of unsettling, particularly as you get a bit older, is in fact um, a reawakening, a way to shake up the old noodle and You know, fire up the neurons, get things flashing and splashing up in the old cranium, and making, uh, making something new. You know, like starting a new exercise regime. Not that I would know anything about that, of course I would not. But days two, we started to feel a bit better, and starting as we understood the scope of what we were doing. When we understood it before, but when you see it in person, it Becomes a little bit more real. And then Martha stayed an extra day. I had to get back to work. I, had, I was shooting a day on uh, uh, Search Party. And uh, Martha was staying because the floor guy had put down some samples that we had requested. And we didn't like either of them. So he was going to get some more samples. And it was going to take another day for her to look at that. So she did. She came home, I came home, we're home. We're starting to dismantle our Connecticut manse Um, and feeling okay about it. Mournful, yes. Unsettled, yes. But okay overall. Better, in fact, than Victor Frankenstein, who is very... Uh, not only unsettled, but nearly uh, catatonic, not, not the right word, he, he, he's raving, ranting and raving after the death of poor Henry Clerval, for which he blames himself, rightfully so. Upon seeing Henry Clerval's body laid out and he himself being accused of the murder, he has gone into convulsions. Two months he was overcome. Two months he was, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, indisposed on the point of death, uttering frightful ravings, wishing to slip into that great unknown. And that's where we pick it up. He's saying, why couldn't I have died? So many undeserving people die all the time. Young kids, young lovers, brides, you know, on, the, on their wedding night, people die all the time. Why not me? And then he ended, well, we ended the last episode by saying, uh, he asked the question, which I liked, of what materials was I made that I could thus resist so many shocks, which like the turning of the wheel continually renewed the torture. And so we pick up there, volume three, chapter four of Frankenstein. But I was doomed to live. And in two months, Found myself as awaking from a dream in a prison, stretched on a wretched bed, surrounded by... And, and here's a word that I always like and never am quite sure how to pronounce. It is the word jail, right? But it is spelled G-A-O-L. So it looks like gaol, gowlers, But I think it might even be pronounced jailers. And so I'm going to crank up the old research machine here. Let me see if it's still working. i got to put some kerosene in and... Crank it up and let's see what it says. Terms of pronunciation. Gowl. Oh, it's going to play an ad for me before it will bother to pronounce it. Ad for Disney World, in case you're wondering. All right. Jail. No, it's pronounced jail. All right. Jail. That's what I thought. But. You know, it's so peculiar looking here in English that you think, oh, that can't be how it's pronounced, but in fact it is. I was in Nantucket uh, the week before I was in sunny Savannah and uh, visited the Old Gaol there on the island. I think it is written as G-A-O-L still standing from it when it was originally constructed in what was probably the late 1600s, maybe early 1700s. Anywho, I was stretched on a wretched bed, surrounded by jailers, turnkeys, bolts, and all the miserable apparatus of a dungeon. It was morning, I remember, when I thus awoke to understanding. I had forgotten the particulars of what had happened and only felt as if some great misfortune had suddenly overwhelmed me. But when I looked around and saw the barred windows and the squalidness of the room in which I was all flashed across my memory and I groaned bitterly. I'm going to do a, um, a reading of that bitter groan and let me see if I can summon up a bitter groan groans such as Victor Frankenstein may have uttered. So he's just opened his eyes and he doesn't, he feels a great misfortune has overtaken him. And now he looks around and he goes, "Oh, not bad, not a bad growl. Maybe it was a little more morose than bitter, but I'm not going to do it again. This sound disturbs an old woman who was sleeping in a chair beside me. Oh, so it's a, it's a co-ed jail cell. Well, that's nice. She was a hired nurse. Oh, I guess not. The wife of one of the turnkeys. And her countenance expressed all those bad qualities which often characterize <laughs> that class. So here we are again. Now, I have said before, I have noticed a uh, a classist, undertone in Mary Shelley's writing, and here we have it again. A hired nurse, the wife of one of the turnkeys, and her countenance expressed the bad qualities of that class, meaning like the blue-collar class. The lines of her face were hard and rude, like that of persons accustomed to see without sympathizing in sights of misery." Her tone expressed her entire indifference. She addressed me in English, and the voice struck me as one that I had heard during my sufferings. "'Are you better now, sir?' said she. I replied in the same language, with a feeble voice. "'I believe I am, but if it all be true, if I indeed did not dream, I am sorry.' that I am still alive to feel this misery and horror. For that matter, replied the old woman, if you mean about the gentleman you murdered, I believe it were better for you if you were dead, for I fancy it will go hard for you. However, that's none of my business. I am sent to nurse you and get you well. I do my duty with a safe conscience. It were well if everybody did the same. (laughs) She's, uh, she's Arabelle as far as I'm concerned, from Jude the Obscure. She's Arabelle, and I love her for it. I turned with loathing from the woman who could utter so unfeeling a speech to a person just saved on the very edge of death, but I felt languid and unable to reflect on all that had passed. Well, from her point of view, she's been you know, babysitting a murderer for the last two months who she probably thinks is faking his own insanity because he doesn't want to deal with the consequences. And, and I'll be honest, I think you are faking your insanity too, Victor, because it doesn't make sense that you fall into convulsions on seeing your dead friend. You may be sad. You may be shocked. You may be horrified. You may gasp, but you will not sink into a catatonic state for lo these past two months. The whole series of my life appeared to me as a dream. I sometimes doubted if indeed it were all true, for it never presented itself to my mind with the force of reality. As the images that floated before me became more distinct, I grew feverish. Come on, dude. A darkness pressed around me. No one was near me who soothed me with the gentle voice of love. No dear hand supported me. The physician came and prescribed medicines, and the old woman prepared them for me. But utter carelessness was visible in the first, and the expression of brutality was strongly marked in the visage of the second. Who could be interested in the fate of a murderer but the hangman who would gain his fee? Who Indeed, Victor Frankenstein, who indeed, perhaps poor Elizabeth, will come to call. I don't know. Perhaps the daemon himself will make an appearance outside the window of the gaol. I don't know. Interesting, I'm just remembering, I'm not remembering, I'm just thinking to myself now, uh, as we mentioned the hangman, jail, G-A-O-L, right, pronounced like so, certainly, Related to the word gallows, presented G A L L, uh, spelled G A L L O W S, yet pronounced entirely differently. Why should that be? I don't know. I'm sure there's a very good etymological reason for it. Speaking of etymological, uh, there, we had an entomological problem at the Haunted Mansion, which is we discovered a hive of honeybees living there in the window. And so we had to have them. Removed a uh, entomologist came and I guess what they do is they take off the window the window facing this is on the exterior wall they collect the queen I guess they put her to sleep you know they they give her a little sleeping draft and she goes off into her queen mob slumber and then the other bees sort of follow wherever she goes and apparently at the end of it. We're going to have ourselves some honey, some honey laced with lead paint. Delicious. And so as we contemplate the sweetness of that lead paint infused honey to come, let us take a break. Back in a moment here on Obscure.
2: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back,
1: We are back on Obscure, contemplating jail and gallows and the particular sweetness you get from honey infused with lead. Victor Frankenstein contemplating the hangman who will be glad to see him and the hangman alone. These were my first reflections, but I soon learned that Mr. Kerwin had shown me extreme kindness. He had caused the best room in the prison to be prepared for me, wretched indeed, was the best, and it was he who had provided a physician and a nurse. It is true he seldom came to see me, for although he ardently desired to relieve the sufferings of every human creature, he did not wish to be present at the agonies and miserable ravings of a murderer. He came, therefore, sometimes to see that I was not neglected, but his visits were short, and with long intervals. One day, while I was gradually recovering, I was seated in a chair, my eyes half open, and my cheeks livid like those in death. I was overcome by gloom and misery, and often reflected I had better seek death than desire to remain in a world which to me was replete with wretchedness. At one time I considered whether I should not declare myself guilty, And suffer the penalty of the law less innocent than poor Justine had been. Right, Justine, in fact, had been totally innocent. And here we have Victor Frankenstein, while not guilty of murder by his own hand, guilty of murder by the hand of that which he created. And should we not suffer the sins of our children? Uh, Now I got to think about that for a second. No, I don't think so. So I guess he's innocent too. All right. Such were my thoughts when the door of my apartment was opened and Mr. Kerwin entered. His countenance expressed sympathy and compassion. Um, not for the first time. I have thought to myself, stop using the word countenance. It's, you're just using the word too much. I don't, I'm sick of it. You could just say face, or you could find some other way to say he looked sympathetic. You know, like I just did. He looked sympathetic. But his countenance, his count, everybody's countenance, just stop. His countenance expressed sympathy and compassion. He drew a chair close to mine and addressed me in French. So this is French, what I'm saying. I'm, I'm translating it for you as I read. I fear that, uh, well, I'll read it in a French accent. I fear that this place is very shocking to you. Can I do anything to make you more comfortable? Comfortable. <laughs> So, of course, it is written in English, and I am reading it with a French accent just because it is fun for me. And, uh, well, look, is it a good French accent? No. Have I ever done a good accent? No. One of the things I have realized about myself, and I joke about it all the time, but in fact I think it's true, is uh, I have somehow made a living as primarily as an actor, despite being a not very good actor. I mean, I think I'm fine, Like, you know, if I were to be in an amateur production of, say, Our Town, I think I could play a very competent stage manager. But um, when I'm around good actors, I think to myself, I can't do what you're doing because I feel stupid doing it. I can't make believe the same way that they can make believe. And it's an absurd job. And In fact, I was talking to a couple actors about it, two actors who are better than me about it. And they all agreed, it's ridiculous what we do. And yet somehow they can overcome it and I can't. And so my performances suffer as a result, I think. That's neither here nor there. Uh, can I do anything to make you more comfortable? comfortable? I thank you. This is Victor Frankenstein now. Or maybe I'll do it in Christoph Waltz. Uh, let me see if I can remember. I thank you. But all that you mentioned is nothing to me. On the whole earth, there is no comfort which I am capable of receiving. I know that, I think I sounded more like, a, no, I guess I was going to say, I sounded more like the guy from the room. What is his name? Tommy Wiseau. than Christoph Waltz, but whatever. Back to Mr. Kerwin. I know that the sympathy of a stranger can be but of little relief to one borne down as you are by so strange a misfortune. But you will, I hope. Soon quit this melancholy abode, for doubtless evidence can easily be brought to free you from the criminal charge. That is my least concern. I am, by a course of strange events, become the most miserable of mortals, persecuted and tortured as I am and have been. Can't, well, just stop with these stupid accents. Can death be any evil to me? So this is what I understand. Kerwin is saying, well, surely, you know, uh, we can find some evidence to clear you of these charges, right? But it's been two months. Why didn't Kerwin just send away for the evidence? Maybe he doesn't know that he was, came from the Orkies or wherever. Maybe he doesn't know. But Kerwin seems convinced somewhat of his innocence. Um, so Kerwin says, nothing indeed could be more unfortunate and agonizing than the strange chances that have lately occurred. You were thrown by some surprising accident on this shore, renowned for its hospitality, seized immediately, and charged with murder. The first sight that was presented to your eyes was the body of your friend, murdered in so unaccountable a manner, and placed, as it were, by some fiend across your path. So Kerwin believes him. And even reading the description of it, I'd be like, I don't believe him. He's full of shit. As Mr. Kerwin said this, notwithstanding the agitation I endured on this retrospect of my sufferings, I also felt considerable surprise at the knowledge he seemed to possess concerning me. I suppose some astonishment was exhibited in my countenance, boo, for Mr. Kerwin hastened to say, Mrs. Kerwin talking, immediately upon your being taken ill, all the papers that were on your person were brought me, and I examined them that I might discover some trace by which I could send to your relations an account of your misfortune and illness. I found several letters, and, among others, one which I discovered from its commencement to be from your father. Okay, so look, he says now, I instantly wrote to Geneva. Nearly two months have elapsed since the departure of my letter. but You are ill. Even now you tremble. You are unfit for agitation of any kind. Frankenstein says. This suspense is a thousand times worse than the most horrible event. Tell me what new scene of death has been acted and whose I am now to lament. Your family is perfectly well, said Mr. Kerwin, with gentleness. And someone, a friend, is come visit you. Oh, is it dear Elizabeth? Is it dear, soon-to-be-poor Elizabeth? As I foretold, let us see. I know not by what chain of thought the idea presented itself but it instantly darted into my mind that the murderer had come to mock at my misery and taunt me with the death of Clerval as a new incitement for me to comply with his hellish desires. I put my hand before my eyes and cried out in agony, Oh, take him away! I cannot see him, for God's sakes! Do not let him enter! Mr. Kerwin regarded me with a troubled countenance. "'He could not help regarding my exclamation as a presumption of my guilt, "'and said in rather a severe tone, "'I should have thought, young man, "'that the presence of your father would have been welcome "'instead of inspiring such violent repugnance. "'My father,' cried I, "'while every feature and every muscle was relaxed from anguish to pleasure, "'is my father indeed come?' How kind, how very kind, but where is he? Why does he not hasten to me? My change of manner surprised and pleased the magistrate. Perhaps he thought that my former exclamation was a momentary return of delirium, and now he instantly resumed his former benevolence. He rose and quitted the room with my nurse, and in a moment my father entered it. Oh, so that's nice. Dad came, you know, that was nice of dad. You know, look, I'm telling you right now, when my son gets accused of a murder he did not commit, I will come visit him in the gaol. Will it take me two months? I mean, we'll see what I've got going on. You know, I mean, I know it was harder to travel back then. and I, But, but you know, am I going to say I'm going to catch the first flight to visit my son accused of murder in the Gowl? I can't promise that. I can promise I will come, or at the very least, FaceTime. I'm saying at the very least. It's, I will probably go. 60-40, I will go. But at the very least, I will FaceTime, and if I don't have anything else going on, and I can get a good-priced airfare, I will visit him. Um, I might even bring him some smokes. He doesn't smoke, but when you're in, you know, Gowell what do you do? You trade cigarettes, baby. That's how it works. That's the coin of the realm. Trust me. You know, I did five upstate. I know. You know I know. Uh, Nothing at the moment could have given me greater pleasure than the arrival of my father. I stretched out my hand to him and cried, are you then safe? And Elizabeth, and Ernest, my father calmed me with the th- assurances of their welfare and endeavored by dwelling on these subjects so interesting to my heart to raise my desponding spirits. But he soon felt that a prison cannot be the abode <laughs> of cheerfulness. Yeah, you think, buddy? What a place is this that you inhabit, my son, said he, looking mournfully at the barred windows and wretched appearance of the room. You traveled to seek happiness, but a fatality seems to pursue you. And poor Clerval. (laughs) I'm so glad the words poor Clerval were uttered. Look, anytime somebody dies, you have to affix the adjective poor to their name, and that is how they are to be known forevermore. This is a rule that is well established in this book. So, at long last, poor Clerval. The name of my unfortunate and murdered friend was an agitation too great to be endured in my weak state. I shed tears. Alas, yes, my father, replied I, some destiny of the most horrible kind hangs over me, and I must live to fulfil it, were surely I should have died on the coffin of Henry. We were not allowed to converse for any length of time, for the precarious state of my health rendered every precaution necessary that could ensure tranquility. Mr. Kerwin came in and insisted that my strength should not be exhausted by too much exertion, but the appearance of my father was to me like that of my good angel, and I gradually recovered my health. And so let's end there. It's not the end of the chapter, although it feels like it should be, but the chapter does continue for some pages as I glance ahead without, of course, reading a word of it, because I shall not violate my promise to you that I do not know what is happening or what is to happen in this or any other book that I shall read. But uh, Victor Frankenstein recovering his health, his father has come to see him, they have mourned poor Clerval, and I am sitting perched on the edge of my Jack-Jack memorial reading throne because... Um, Not because I am on the edge of my seat, so to speak, as to what happens in the book, but because I hurt my back dismantling the manse today as I was shoveling dirt from a tomato, a large tomato bin into a wheelbarrow because we are bringing the tomato bin and I wrenched my back. So this is yet further confirmation that as we age, we become more settled had I known I would be moving when we purchased the tomato bin. I would not have put quite so much dirt into it. Bags and bags of dirt. So, I have to nurse myself back to good health as I prepare in just a few weeks' time for the move to Sunny Yeah. It is, uh, you know, the wife and I are both looking ahead with a certain... I don't know, fortitude, I guess. A certain steely-eyed countenance, and there I will use that word purposefully as we think about this next chapter in our lives. Um, The Haunted Mansion is hopefully becoming exorcised. Hopefully, sage is being burned in anticipation of our arrival. Um, But I will almost certainly create a fictitious specter, or perhaps I will recognize a real specter when we arrive. Here's something about haunted houses. You know, generally haunted houses, they're older homes, right? You know, they've been around a while. Um, But I don't think I've ever heard of a house that was haunted by two different ghosts, like ghosts who didn't know each other. You know what I mean? Like a ghost from, let's say, the 1700s and like a ghost from like the 1920s. Does that ever happen? Do they ever interact? Are they ever like, hey, you put your uh, 1700 specter in my peanut butter? Hey, you put your 1900 <laughs> specter in my chocolate? You know, do they ever do that? Do they ever converse or can they not see each other, but we, their uh, human human presence, can sense their phantasmagoric presence? This is something I don't know. Now, you may say to yourself, Michael, do you even believe in ghosts? And the answer to that would be, no, I do not. Despite the fact that I believe in everything, I have yet to find compelling evidence of specters. I simply don't believe. That being said, Sunny Savannah is allegedly the most haunted city in America, so I may have to revise my opinion on that matter. I hope I do. I hope I do discover some ghostly wanderings when we get there. And I will certainly keep you updated as to whether or not I do. But we are still a few weeks away from that. And I cannot promise that even when I arrive, I will immediately see ghosts. I probably will not. So ghosts abound. The ghosts in Savannah, the ghosts of poor Clerval, poor Justine, poor William... The ghosts of my youthful spirit, now probably residing here in the wilds of Connecticut forevermore, even if my mortal self continues to shuffle along this poor earth. But we, you know, I can't die just yet because we do have a story to finish, and we will resume next week on another spectral episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein, is produced by Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original music by Craig Wedron. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. There you will find every single episode of Obscure Season 2. Frankenstein. These episodes are released weeks before they are released to the general public. In addition, you can also find writings, musings, erotica, and bonus episodes. Bonus episodes which sometimes involve Frankenstein and sometimes involve things entirely different, often with guest stars. It's patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Very reasonably priced too, I might add.